Let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. You know, every time I come up here, I think, you know, maybe I'll make some small talk. Maybe I'll talk about this or that or the other thing. And then once I step up here, all I want to do is talk about the Bible. So we'll forego the small talk this evening and just get right into the study of God's Word. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness. You are good, and your mercy endures forever. And Lord, we've, we've experienced that. We've lived that. Maybe there's some people here this evening, Father, they, they feel like they're living outside of the touch of that goodness and your, your ever-enduring mercy. Lord, I pray that you would communicate that to them this evening in a powerful and a precious way. Do it, Lord, by your Spirit, and open up our hearts to receive what you have to give us tonight through your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, when we come to the Gospel of Luke here tonight, chapter 6, starting at verse 27, we're coming now in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Plain. Now, the Sermon on the Plain is very similar to what Jesus delivered, what I believe to be on a different occasion that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. But I believe, and I discussed this in some depth last week, so I'm just going to touch on it here tonight. I believe that this was basically Jesus' message as an itinerant preacher. When it says that he went all throughout Galilee preaching the kingdom of God, I think he bore this essential message that's contained in a fuller form on the Sermon on the Mount in a more abbreviated form here in Luke chapter 6 in what we call the Sermon on the Plain. But the message is essentially the same. God's kingdom is different. God's kingdom is not according to your expectation, and especially it's not according to the expectation of the common Jewish person of the first century world. And when Jesus came and preached what the kingdom of God was really like, it sounded like a revolution back in their ears, and if we'll just sort of clear the earwax, spiritually speaking, out of our ears, it'll sound like a revolution to us. I mean, do I need to emphasize any more than what Jesus just begins with? Right here, verse 27, even after he's laid the groundwork of these statements of blessing and woe in the previous verses, right here in verse 27, do you notice what he says? He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. I think it's possible for us to read those as just sort of religious words on a page and go, yeah, yeah, I got that. Okay, move on to the next thing. Do you realize how challenging that is? Jesus told you and me, I'm, I'm including myself, of course, in all of this. Jesus told us to love our enemies. Do you have some enemies in your life? Don't raise your hand. You probably do. You probably do. What did Jesus command you to do? Love them. Love them. Care about them. This is a shockingly simple command to understand. But apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit, it is an impossible one to obey. And then Jesus told us to actually how to love our enemies. Because when he says love your enemies, we, we almost think that he's, he's communicating us. Get a warm feeling in your heart about your enemies. Get good, gushy feelings about them. Ladies and gentlemen, that's just about impossible. 
But Jesus says, no, I'm going to tell you how you can practically love your enemies. I'll spell it out to you very practically. Ready for this? What do you do? You do good to them, you bless them, and you pray for them. If you have an enemy in your life, look for a way to do some good for that person. Look for a way to bless them. When he says bless them who curse you, he has especially in mind what you say about them. So look for a way to do good for them. Look for a way to talk good about them. And look for a way to pray for that one with whom you're an enemy. We're Christians, aren't we? But doesn't this press on? I mean, there's almost something that strikes us on the inside and says, no, that's not what he really meant. Please, David, bring a rabbit out of the Greek hat that will explain this away and tell me that it's not saying what it really says. It does. Now, in a sense, I love the realism of this. Jesus recognized that we will have enemies. This plan of God's kingdom takes into account real world problems. I'll never forget when I was a student going to college, and this is in the early years of my college. I I first went to Ventura College, the community college there. We lived in Ventura at the time. And I remember one time I was just walking through campus, and I saw on one of these little billboards in the midst of the campus, I saw this sign. And there were several of them sort of stapled up around the campus, and it said this. It said, enemies are friends whom we choose not to understand. I think Jesus would have ripped that poster down from the wall. He would say, no, you've got enemies. And you know what they are? They're your enemies. They're against you. They don't like you. They've harmed you in some way. No, don't pretend that they're not your enemy, but rather take them as they are your enemy and choose to love them. And how do I love them? Jesus told you how. What did he say? Do good for them, bless them, And pray for those who spitefully use you. Now we are going to have enemies, at least from time to time. But we're to respond to them in love. Trusting that God will protect our cause. And maybe God will destroy our enemies. And he'll destroy our enemies in the best way possible. By making them into our friends. Do you get a feel for how revolutionary it was for Jesus to say this. Can you picture in your mind's eyes as he says this to a group of people who were disciples? And I believe that Jesus spoke this to disciples, but to disciples in the broader sense, not merely the 12, but to all of those who said, hey, this man has something to teach me. I'm going to listen to him. To people who had that kind of attitude, they sat down and they said, okay, teacher, would you please teach me something? I want to hear what you're saying about the kingdom of God because I'm interested in it. When Jesus said that, jaws just dropped. I'm supposed to love my enemies? I always thought that I was supposed to hate them. But no, what did Jesus say again? Verses 27 and 28. Do good, bless, pray for those who spitefully use you. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, but it's a practical thing to do. How about this one? I just love this phrase. Bless those who curse you. Do people say bad things about you? Get them back. Say good things about them. This is difficult, is it not? Isn't it so easy to at the very least talk bad about the people who talk bad about us? Jesus said no. 
If they curse you with your mouth, would you bless them by what you say? I hope this is just hitting us deep to our heart and saying, Jesus, if you as a king are going to reign in me, the character of your kingdom is going to be very different than the kingdoms of this world. I don't know any kingdom in this world that's built on that principle of loving your enemies, but the kingdom of Jesus is different. The kingdom of Jesus isn't advanced with material armies. It's not judged or it's not organized according to the principles of this world, but it's according to the principles of him, the great king. He goes on here, verse 29. He says, to him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. He just continues to pile it on. You almost, okay, Jesus, wasn't enough to see, told us to, to love our enemies. No, but you just keep heaping it upon me. Now you're telling me to do what? To him who strikes me on the one cheek, offer the other also. He's telling you to do that famous phrase, to turn the other cheek. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this needs some explanation because I have to say, this has been grossly misunderstood. This has been understood by many people that Jesus was not giving people the right of physical self-defense. As if Jesus was saying something like this. If somebody takes out a baseball bat and hits you across the right side of your head, then you should just stand up and give him the left side of your head so that he can hit the other side of your head with a baseball bat. That you should do nothing to physically defend yourself. And some people have even said nothing to defend your family. Just turn the other cheek. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not what Jesus spoke about at all here. It was a classic phrase in Judaism of his day to strike somebody on the cheek was to insult them. It wasn't having a physical uh, attack. It wasn't a punch. It was a slap. And I'm going to use a little bit of a fanciful illustration here, but it's along these lines where you see that thing in the old movies where the guy takes off his glove, you know, when he holds the glove and he strikes the other guy in the face. You know, how dare you, sir? And he strikes him across the face. The, the, the strike with the glove says something. I'm insulting you to your face. You mean nothing to me. That's exactly the context and the phrasing that Jesus is using. He's not talking about a physical assault. Ladies and gentlemen, you have responsibility to protect yourself and especially your family in a physical assault. But Jesus is talking about when somebody insults you. When Jesus says somebody's going to demean your character. When they're going to speak evil of you. When they do all of this. What should you do? And it's just amazing that Jesus says in this age where we're so concerned and so obsessed with sticking up for our own rights, Jesus says, well, just take it. Take it and say, okay, heap a little more upon me. He says that we should patiently bear such insults and offenses and not resist an evil person who insults us this way. Instead, what do we do? We trust God to defend us. And if anybody lived this, it was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. Can you imagine all the times he was insulted, all the times his honor and his dignity was assaulted by wicked men who thought nothing of just saying the worst kind of things about Jesus? Do you know what they said of him? They publicly into his face said that he was born of fornication. They publicly into his face said that he was a drunkard, that he was a glutton that he was a blasphemer. They called him every name in the book. 
They heaped so much scorn, so much insult upon him. And if there's any way to describe it in the greatest terms, it would be at his suffering and crucifixion. I still can't get out of my mind the vivid image that the Gospels tell us that when Jesus was crucified, when they beat him, when they prepared him for that agony of execution, that religious leaders, high men, lofty men, men with you know, business suits, so to speak, in that day, that they came up to him and they spit in his face. They jeered at him. They mocked him. They mocked the king of glory. And what did Jesus do? He patiently bore it. I'll receive it. I will do just what I said here. I will turn the other cheek. Now, nobody should think from this that Jesus meant that evil should never be resisted. Jesus demonstrated with his life that evil should be resisted. How about when he cleansed the temple? by making a whip of cords and by driving out the money changers in the temple, which I believe he did twice. He did it once towards the beginning of his ministry and he did it a second time towards the end because in the three years in between, they pretty much forgot all about it. Jesus did that twice. No, Jesus knew how to address evil and he knew how to resist it in the right way. He's thinking more of the personal evils that are practiced against us. And ladies and gentlemen, too, I want to make this very, very clear. It's also wrong to think that Jesus meant that there's no place for punishment or retribution in society. Jesus here is giving specific instructions for the disciple in his kingdom. This is what it means to be my follower and to follow my teaching. He's not telling you how to run a court system. He's not telling you how to operate the law of the land. No, instead, the Bible tells us very plainly, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I'm thinking specifically in the New Testament at Romans chapter 13, where it tells us that God gives divine authority to the magistrate to punish evildoers. So he's not telling us how to set up a system of law or courts or that. He's telling you how to deal with it in your interpersonal relationship. And ladies and gentlemen, I've seen it. I've seen sometimes what I think is a painful sight among people who call themselves Christians. I've seen people who call themselves Christians and are all, oh, you know, we should just let the criminal go because, you know, Jesus said turn the other cheek and it doesn't matter how many people they've raped, robbed, or murdered. Just turn the other cheek. Isn't that what Jesus told us to do? And they, they quote that as being some kind of public policy that the civil society should follow, but they refuse to do it in their own personal life. Can't you see that they're exactly turning it around? Jesus was not giving instructions for the court of law, but he was telling you and me and each one of us how we're to conduct ourselves towards one another. I must turn my cheek when I am personally insulted, but the government has a responsibility to restrain the evil man from physical assault. Now, it's not just about insults either. It's about what people take from you. Look at this, verse 29. Can you think of anything that runs more counter to the spirit of our age than verses 29 and 30? And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. What's the attitude? Sue him. You take my cloak. There's going to be a lawsuit involved in this. And what does Jesus say? He just says, no, no, no. 
It says, why do you so pridefully hold on to these things and refuse to regard me as a God who can vindicate you? He told us how to deal with people who mistreat us, coerce us, and manipulate us. What should we do? We should take command of the situation by sacrificial giving and love. You come and you demand my cloak. You're going to take it away from me. I'll tell you what. No, I'm going to take command of that situation. Say, take my cloak and take my, uh, I don't know, my outer jacket as well. Take my umbrella. Take my poncho, whatever it would be in our modern vernacular. I'm not going to feel a victim in this. No. I'm going to feel like a giver in this and give you for more than you were even demanding. What he says there in verse 30, from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Ladies and gentlemen, you can only practice this kind of sacrificial love when we know that God will take care of us. Have you ever suffered loss from dealings with another person or even another believer? It kind of stuck in your craw, didn't it? Maybe you loaned them money and they didn't pay you back and it's uncomfortable between you and them now. Maybe there was some good or some possession or something like that that was mutual. I don't know, you know, the, the complexity of these things, they could go on all, but you know what I'm talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, there you are, you're feeling hurt, you're feeling slighted, you're just feeling bitter in your heart because it's not set right. Can I just tell you, can you just say right now, Lord Jesus, I want you to set this right in my life. And I'm going to trust that I'm going to have my focus on you and on your greatness and trust that you can provide for me. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the same thing I think. You think, oh, good heavens, nobody can live like that. Where's the limit? I won't have anything. Look at all the people around asking for a handout. I walk up and down State Street and how many people are begging? If I give to every one of them, I won't have anything left. Great. What good is that? What's the limit to this kind of giving? I'll tell you what the limit is to this kind of giving. It's not not complicated to figure out. It's very difficult to live, but it's not complicated to figure out. Here's the limit. The limit is love. Because you and I know that oftentimes giving to a person what they're asking for is not doing what's best for them. When you enable somebody, let's say, who's in the midst of an addiction, and you give them the supplies to continue on in their addiction and in their sin and perhaps even in their depravity, are you helping them? You're not helping them at all. Love would establish the limit to say, I know you're asking for this from me, but I know it's not good for you for me to give this to you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I know how that can be twisted. I know that we can conjure that up in our own mind and say, well, you know, it's not good for you. And as a matter of fact, it's not good for anybody for me to give to them. No, that's a twisting of this. I'm just simply saying there is an actual limit that we can impose on what we give to other people. And it's the limit that love itself would establish. I'm not going to give unto you if it would add to your hurt, even though you don't know it. I'm not going to give to you if it would add to your misery. That is the limit that Jesus would expect us to follow and expect to to stick to. You know, I've done this from time to time. I think of it now. It's been a while since I've done it. Sometimes when somebody would be, you know, asking for a handout. I don't know if we call it begging anymore. Do we call it begging still? I really don't know. They're panhandling, whatever you want to call it, asking for a donation. There they are. And that... Sometimes I would go and I'd take out a dollar bill or maybe I'd take out a little bit more and I'd say, can I give this to you? But before I give it to you, can I pray? And of course, they'd be delighted to have me pray. They'd have me pray all day long if I'm going to give them money. 
And then this is what I'd pray before I gave them money. I'd say, Lord, I pray for this person as I give this money to them, and I pray for this money. And Lord, if this is a good person who's going to use this money for something good and for something, uh, you know, really beneficial in their life or for food or for shelter, that I pray that you'd bless this money and that you'd bring them more. But God, I pray that if they're going to spend this money on drugs or alcohol or immorality, I pray that you'd curse this dollar and it would be the last dollar they see for a long time. Now, what's funny is the people who refuse the money after that. I've had more than one. No, thank you. Well, of course, I'm sure that many other received it under false pretenses. But what I was trying to do, well, listen, not just give them, but but maybe do some good in the situation. So I I don't know. do, Do we understand what I'm talking about here? We are to have open, giving, generous hearts. And the line that we draw for how much do we give and to whom do we give and in what situation we give, really, it's the line that love itself would impose. I I, I can imagine a person that say, well, okay, I'm going to give it all away. I'm going to love them. I'm going to give it all away to that. And listen, have you just loved your family there? Your family's deprived. Your children are insecure. Your, Your home is a wreck. No, you've you got to establish the limits that love itself would impose. But within that, couldn't you, couldn't you just pray a prayer that I think we should all pray along that way? God, don't let me use love as a cover for a lack of generosity. Give me a generous heart towards others. Now, you speak of a generous heart towards others, look at verse 31. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. What do we call this? We call this the golden rule, don't we? In the Matthew text, it's expressed a little different, but the thought is exactly the same. In the Matthew text, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the Sermon on the Plain, but in the Sermon on the Mount, how is it expressed? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, the negative of this specific command was known long before Jesus It had long been said among the rabbis and even in the Old Testament, you should not do to your neighbor what you would not want them to do to you. But it's a very significant advance for Jesus to now put this into the positive, to say to you and I, you should do unto others what you would like them to do unto you. And in doing this, Jesus made the command so much broader. It's one thing to say, don't do this. Don't break any of the laws. Okay, well, that's wonderful. There you are, you're a driver. Don't break any of the traffic laws. Okay, I won't do anything bad. But listen, you could say, I won't break any of the traffic laws, but I won't pull over to help that stranded motorist. You see, pulling over to help the stranded motorist, the law doesn't command you to do that, but love in your heart, that's the positive. And Jesus said, don't leave it, just with saying, I won't perform the negative. But he said, no, you must also perform the positive. And this is what he says, verse 31, you also do to them likewise. And ladies and gentlemen, all I can say is that this principle applies in a very powerful way in our interpersonal relationships. I think it's true in particular among the body of Christ. Honestly now. If you feel that among the community of Christians, you're not being treated the way that you would like to be treated, 
Why don't you go out and find some other people and treat them the way that you'd like to be treated? I've seen this, and you know, it's just, it's just human nature. I don't mean to condemn it, but I do mean to expose it. Look, it's just this way. Nobody's friendly towards me. Nobody shows me any hospitality. Nobody invites me out to coffee. Nobody invites me out to lunch. You know, all those things are probably true. How many people have you invited out to coffee? Why don't you just go out and find somebody and treat them exactly the same way that you would like to be treated? And you know what? It works miracles, doesn't it? Isn't there such beautiful power in that? It's so simple. Now, it's not easy to perform. You see, when we boil down the essence of what God requires to us in statements like love your enemies and do unto other people as you would have them do unto you, those are very simple handles to grab hold of what God requires of us. But honestly, it doesn't make it any easier to obey. No one has ever consistently acted towards others the way that they would want them to be acted towards. But ladies and gentlemen, That's exactly what Jesus Christ wants to empower us to do as citizens of his kingdom. Because that's what he's laying out. He's laying out his manifesto of the kingdom, his agenda. This is what it's like to live in my kingdom. Let's continue on and and just get our mind blown even more. Verse 32. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. There's almost something as we we realize it's beautiful, it's precious. We're hanging on every word that Jesus says. But there's another aspect to us that says, stop, stop, Jesus. This is just too much. Especially when you expose this idea in verse 32. You lay this open in my life. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Man, Jesus, did you have to ask that question? You see... We should regard it as no matter of virtue and no imitation of Jesus if we merely return the love that's given to us. So you're nice to the people who are nice to you. Big deal. What do you do towards the people who aren't nice to you? What do you do towards the people who do unloving things against you? I want you to remember that Jesus is teaching here the character of the citizens of his kingdom. And we should expect that this character is going to be different from the character that's seen in the world. And there's many good reasons to understand why more should be expected from you as a Christian than other people who just live in the general population. I'll speak to you here tonight as if you're all followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not. But you should be. But let's just say, you're all followers of Jesus Christ. You've all been touched by the Spirit of God. You've all been given new life in Jesus Christ. God and the world has every reason to expect better conduct from you than other people in this world. After all, 
You claim to have something that other people do not have. You claim to be renewed and repentant and redeemed by Jesus Christ. You claim to have something that others do not have in the sense that you have a power that they don't have. You have a promise, don't you? That you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. I can't love my enemy. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't bless that one who curses me. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't bear the way that they rip me off. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. God and the world has every reason to expect a greater level of conduct from you. Ladies and gentlemen, you, if you're a believer, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. And you have a better future than those who don't know Jesus. Now with all that, isn't it entirely reasonable that we should be able to say, what do you do more than others? What do you do? How is greater love demonstrated in your life? Now, can I just say, I don't want this to be all condemning. I want to thank the Lord that I do see wonderful love from the family of God. I want to thank the Lord that I see generous hearts, that I see giving people, that I see people who give of their time and their talents and their treasure to reach and to bless a needy world. I'm not trying to speak for a moment to say that these things are absent among us. I'm just trying to say that they should be more and more and that we should never satisfy ourselves by measuring ourselves against what the world does. Never. Rather, we should only satisfy ourselves by saying, as citizens of his kingdom, what kind of conduct is expected of us? And if we do this, did you see what Jesus said in verse 35? He said, you will be sons of the Most High. We imitate God because you know what? God shows love towards his enemies. When you were an enemy of God, God still loved you. And he carried on his love and his grace and his kindness towards you. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Now God just says, I want you to imitate me in this. We can be like this, kind to the unthankful and evil. Did you know he said that in verse 35? God is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Sometimes it's harder to be kind to the unthankful than it even is to the evil. I did all that for them. They didn't even say thank you. They're not filled with gratitude. Well, keep being kind to them. Oh, but it's so hard. That's right. You've got a God in heaven who fills your heart. He's kind to the unthankful and evil. You can be too, drawing on his strength. Verse 36. Therefore, be merciful, just as your father is also merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 36, therefore be merciful just as your father is also merciful. In the kingdom of Jesus, we have a pattern for the way that we should give mercy to other people. We should be merciful the way that we want God to be merciful to us. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you want God to be merciful to you? Let me ask it to you this way. What kind of measure do you want God to use when he's scooping out the mercy to you? You want to use like a steam shovel, like a great big dump truck. That's the measure of mercy you want. Well, why is it that you want dump truck size mercy from God, but you give teaspoon size mercy to others? 
God says, if you're going to break out the teaspoon with other people, then I'll break out the teaspoon with you. Chew on that for a few minutes. And suddenly you'll backtrack. You say, no, Lord, I want to use that great measure of mercy with others. I want you to think about the life of one of the great people in the Old Testament, King David. King David, the greatest king over Israel. But in many ways, his life was was a jumble of of a few scandals and problems and difficulties in his life, in his ministry. And sometimes we look at the life of David and we say, God, why were you so merciful to him? Here's a man who, who put a scandal of adultery upon the kingdom of Israel. Here's a man who murdered the husband of the woman that he was committing adultery with. God, that's a punishable offense, not just in Israel, but in any civilized country. That's an offense punishable by by capital punishment. Why did you spare the life of David? Why were you so merciful to him? And I'll tell you one reason why. Because David was so merciful to King Saul. Do you remember many occasions when David had the opportunity to wreak vengeance upon Saul? And he could have. And it was right in his hand to do it. But what did David do? David extended mercy. I think David, either by instinct or by instruction, knew this principle from the Lord. That if I want God to show great mercy to me, then I should show great mercy to other people. And that's what God says to you and to I today as citizens of this great kingdom of Jesus. In that same context, he says, verse 37, did you see that? Judge not, and you shall not be judged. With this command, Jesus warned against passing judgment upon others, because when we do so, we're going to be judged in a similar manner. Judge not that you not be judged. Isn't that funny? Don't you sometimes think that that is the world's most popular verse of Scripture? How many times have you had somebody who's hostile to Christianity quote that people who don't know a lick of the Bible, they know that verse, don't they? And what do they love to quote? Judge not, lest you be judged. Don't you judge me, mister. Don't you tell me what's right and what's wrong. Now, of those people who seem to know nothing of the Bible, yet they seem to know this verse, most of the people who quote this verse have no understanding of what Jesus said. This is what they think or maybe hope that Jesus said. They hope that Jesus said something like this. You are absolutely forbidden to pass any value judgment on any kind of sin or lifestyle whatsoever. You are forbidden from doing it. You can never look at anybody's life and say that's good or that's bad, that's sinful or it's not sinful. You're absolutely forbidden from doing that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here. that is not what Jesus said here at all. Matter of fact, a little bit later in the same sermon, the same sermon in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45, which I thought we might get to tonight, but now I'm not so sure. But anyway, Jesus commanded us, He commanded us to know ourselves and to know others by the fruit of their life. How can you know yourself or anybody else by the fruit of their life unless you assess the fruit of their life in some way? Jesus called you and I, at least on some level, to be fruit inspectors. And to do so, you must exercise the faculty of judgment in some way. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the Christian is called to show unconditional love. But we are not called to show unconditional approval. And we can, and might I say in particular in our present age, we must 
love people without approving of their conduct. I don't approve of your conduct. Matter of fact, your conduct makes me sad for yourself and the damage that it wreaks in your life. But I love you and I care about you. And I don't condemn you, but I care about you. So this does not prohibit examining the lives of others. But ladies and gentlemen, it certainly condemns the spirit in which we many times examine the lives of other people. You want to know a great example of unjust judgment that Jesus spoke against here? A great example of it is the woman who came to anoint the feet of Jesus with oil. Do you remember that occasion? It's in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. This woman came to anoint the feet of Jesus with oil and she poured out this precious ointment and she wiped the the feet of Jesus with her hair and she just gave this great outpouring of love. And what did the disciples do? They stand back and they said, what a waste this is. What terrible motive she has. What an awful woman they shouldn't be doing. Ladies and gentlemen, that was unjust judgment. She was doing something beautiful and precious before the Lord, but they had a rash, a harsh, and an unjust judgment. Do you want to know how you really do break this command? You don't break this command by calling sin, sin, or by refusing to approve of every conduct that takes place in our society. But I'll tell you where you do break this command. You break this command when you choose to think the worst of other people. You break this command when you only speak to other people of their faults. You break this command when you judge an entire life by its worst moments. Would you want your life to be judged by its worst moments? But sometimes we do that, and that's judging unrighteous judgment. We break this command when we judge the hidden motives of others. We break this command when we judge others without considering ourselves in the same circumstances. We break this command when we judge others without being mindful that we are going to stand in the same judgment. You see, look at what Jesus said right there in verse 37. He said, condemn not and forgive. You see, it goes beyond just judging. You're not to condemn and you're not to withhold forgiveness. Ladies and gentlemen, it's really very simple. Jesus says it very plain, verse 38, that with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, if that's true, then what should you do? He says in verse 38, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over. Jesus encouraged us to have a freedom in giving that that doesn't worry about giving too much. Do you worry about giving out too much forgiveness? Don't. Do you worry about giving out too much mercy? Don't. If it's true mercy. Again, what limit then do I apply? Ladies and gentlemen, you apply the same limit as always. What's the limit? Love is the limit. And we recognize that sometimes unconditional approval or support of somebody in their condition isn't loving them. It's moving them towards destruction, not towards something good. So we allow the limit that love itself applies, but we'll push it right up to that limit. You see, we won't allow our own stinginess to be the limit. We won't allow our own bitterness to be the limit. We won't allow a spirit of retribution or selfishness be the limit. No, whatever limit is there, it's the limit that is established by love. And you know the statement that Jesus gave there in verse 38? 
give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, running over. That's a principle that's been tested and true when it comes to generosity with our material resources. Simply said this, you cannot outgive God. You just can't do it. He's going to return more to you than you ever give to him. In one way or another, you give to God and he'll give you back more. I mean, I've known men, just beautiful men. They've, I, I knew a man once, he said, I'm going to start daring God. I'm going to start giving and see if I can outgive him. And so he just, man, he just started giving boldly. And so I asked him later on, well, how's it going? He goes, I, I still haven't done it yet. I still haven't outgiven God yet. No, I think it's true with our material resources. But ladies and gentlemen, I think the most pointed application of what Jesus was talking about right here is not so much the context of giving our material resources, but giving love and blessing and forgiveness to others. You are never the loser when you give those things after the pattern of God's generosity. Because again, verse 38, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This helps us to really understand what Jesus meant when he said, judge not that you not be judged. You see, we might say that Jesus did not prohibit the judgment of others. But what he required this, he said, your judgment must be fair. It must be accurate. It must be in the context of love. And don't you dare ever judge somebody else by a standard that you won't be judged by. Ladies and gentlemen, that's just flat out hypocrisy. Sometimes I think we need to become very clear about what hypocrisy is and isn't in our current age. Some people think that having a standard that you don't fully live up to is hypocrisy. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not hypocrisy. That's life. I hope you have a standard that is beyond your ability to consistently live up to day in and day out. If there's anybody here who all the time loves their enemies and never has a struggle with that, Would you please come up and pray for me after the service? No, that's a high standard, and we don't meet that standard all the time, but we still hold it. That's not hypocrisy. I'll tell you what hypocrisy says. Hypocrisy says, you've got to love your enemy, but I don't have to. That's hypocrisy. I'll judge you by this standard, but I won't hold myself to that same standard. That's hypocrisy. And that is most specifically what Jesus condemned right here, was to say, you should never have that sort of attitude towards other people. When our judgment in regard to others is wrong, it's usually because we're judging according to a standard that we don't apply to ourselves, but we should judge by the same standard. Verse 39, now... It's a little bit difficult here. I look at the clock. I look at my text. I say, can we make it to the end of the chapter? Should we take a break here? And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who's perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite! 
First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, this is obvious. Can the blind lead the blind? The answer to that is no. And so we should never look to blind men to lead us, nor should we try to lead others in our blindness. And I think Jesus is making a subtle, or perhaps not so subtle, reference to all the teachers of his day who taught a kingdom of a different agenda. Now he's saying, no, those people who taught you that the kingdom of God was all about retribution and the exaltation of a, of a present kingdom and all the rest of it. No, all that sort of that. That's the blind leading the blind. But I'm here to give you life. I'm here to give you truth. And in those words of Jesus, we see the guilt of those who are the blind leaders of the blind. But we also see the responsibility of people. You've got a responsibility. Make sure that those who you follow are not blind. Why? Because a disciple will imitate its teacher. Verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher. Now, a disciple is much like a student. But the idea of disciple in the New Testament is not only a student, but it also denotes a personal connection to the teacher. It's not just the giving of information, but it was really to be a follower of that person. And in this way, the disciple would never be greater than the teacher. So Jesus says very plainly, Everyone who's perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Therefore, you better take great care to the teachers that you follow. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to be like the people that you allow to teach you. I'm not saying perfectly. I'm not saying in every measure, but in least some regard. So doesn't that put some responsibility upon you and upon I to be very discerning upon those people that we'll receive as teachers into our life? That's the one aspect of what Jesus got at here. But you saw the other aspect in verse 41, where he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't perceive the plank in your own eye? And this is a beautiful, humorous figure that Jesus uses. He thinks about a guy with a little you know, piece of sawdust in his eye. Then another guy with a great big two-by-four sticking out of his. It's like something out of the Three Stooges. Here, let me get this speck that's in your eye. Swings his head, hits you in the head with the two-by-four. No, I've got it. Hits you in the head again with the two by four. It's, just, it's an absurd figure, but it's humorous. Jesus is trying to inject a little bit of humor here. We're grateful for it because Jesus' teaching is very heavy. And Jesus said, well, let me lighten it up a little bit. Look at this picture. There's a man with a great big board sticking out of his eyeball, and he's out there trying to correct the, the speck in somebody else. It's foolish. Now, by the way, Jesus said, not that you shouldn't care about the speck in your brother's eye. He said, go ahead and remove it, but what do you do first? First, you get that stupid plank out of your own eye. And isn't this where we fall short and where we fall guilty many, many times? I think, again, I don't know why I'm thinking of King David so much. Wasn't there a great example where there was a plank in his eye and he was worried about a speck in somebody else's when the prophet Nathan came to him to rebuke him about his great sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah? And, and, and the prophet Nathan told a story about a little lamb who was taken from a man and stolen unjustly. And the man had no reason to steal it, but he did it. And what did David said should be done to that man who stole the lamb? David said, well, that man should be executed for that crime. He doesn't deserve to live. And Nathan said, what? He said to David, you are the man. There was a great big board sticking out of the eye of King David. But he was worried about a speck in somebody else's eye. And God dealt with all this, but first he did it by removing the plank from David's eye. He said, verse 42, you don't see the plank that's in your own eye. It's not easy to see. Ladies and gentlemen, we all have blind spots. Shouldn't this just make a little more humble in our walk before the Lord? 
Can we just grab on to this note of humility and say, I don't see it all. I don't know it all. Rather, I want to remain humble and contrite before the Lord. I want to appreciate right now that there may be sin in my life that's perfectly obvious to everybody else, but I myself don't see it. If you really think about that, you're not going to be able to sleep tonight. That's frightening, isn't it? There may very well be sin in your life that's totally obvious to anybody who spends 15 minutes with you. But you yourself, no. What are you talking about? Now listen, the thing about a blind spot that's really difficult is that it's blind. We don't see it. Shouldn't we make it the great prayer of our heart? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me to the way everlasting. Verse 43, for a good tree does not bear bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. Oh, you may not be able to see it, but other people will. It's evident what's in your life. Your life displays what's in your heart. And I know you think you hide it pretty good. I know you think that maybe there's sins that you cherish or you hide from other people. And you feel like you got it under control. You got it under wraps. Ladies and gentlemen, it's probably more obvious than you think. Sometimes we're just like children. Isn't it funny how little children think they're so good at hiding something from mom and dad. When they don't realize, you know, that the the chocolate chips are all over their face. No, I didn't take anything. They just can't look in the mirror. They're blind to it. And oftentimes we're just the same way. What's in our heart is going to be displayed in our life. You know what? I hope this doesn't depress you. I hope what it does is it drives you to Jesus and it makes you say to him, Jesus, would you give me a new heart? With your new, beating, glorious heart in my life, I'll have something good to show other people. But if you leave me with my decrepit old self patterned after the world and the flesh, well, then there's no goodness in that. Let's finish up with this concluding exhortation, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. What a sobering question Jesus asked in verse 46. What's the question? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? He made a distinction between those who merely make a verbal profession of faith and those who actually hear and do what Jesus said. You see, we got to use the language of Lord, Lord. You can't be rescued unless you say Lord, Lord. But it's not enough to say Lord, Lord. 
You've got to say, Lord, Lord, and then listen to what Jesus says. This, this applies to so much in our life, and it's very, very powerful to think that Jesus put this in the form of a question. It's as if he draws near to us and looks at us eye to eye, and he says, why? Why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say? Either stop calling me Lord or do what I say. Why? Why would you do this? Are you so enthralled with having a spiritual veneer with people admiring you for some supposed spirituality that you're just content to say the right things without actually having it lived out in your life? But no, Jesus says beyond that, why, why? G. Camel Morgan said something very powerful. He said, each soul guilty of the wrong referred to must face this why alone. And all that need be said is that to do so will inevitably be to discover the unworthiness of the reason. Jesus asks you why. Well, what honestly question, answer could you give? Well, Jesus, I said, Lord, Lord, but I didn't do what you said because oh, it was so unpleasant. It was so boring to do what you said. Because all my friends weren't doing what you said. Because, because, because. There are going to be people who stand before Jesus on the day of judgment. And he's going to ask them that question. He said, you called me Lord, but you didn't do the things I said. Why? Can you understand? Nobody is going to have an adequate answer to that question. Nobody's going, well, Jesus, I'll give you the five-point plan as to why I didn't do it. And no, it'll make a lot of sense and it'll excuse me before you. No, every mouth will be stopped and it'll just be a condition before the Lord and say, Lord, what a foolish person I was. What a terrible life I've lived. It was like the man, verse 49, who did nothing. Merely hearing God's word isn't enough to build a good foundation. You have to build upon it by not just hearing, but doing. You know what? Like every good preacher, Jesus concluded his message with a real call to decision. What are you going to be like? You're going to be like the man who builds his house on the sand and it's all washed away in the flood? Or are you going to be like the man who builds his house on the rock? You decide. I'm calling you to decision. That's how Jesus ended this great sermon on the plain. You decide. And the decision comes to us today. Jesus, you've told me in these very powerful words something of what it means to be a citizen in your kingdom. Now, do I want this kingdom or will I turn my back on it? I pray that for all of us here tonight, God has awakened our soul to a new understanding of what this kingdom is like. And to say, Jesus, won't you build in me that character, that personality of a true kingdom citizen? Father, that's my prayer for each of us tonight. Lord, we look at this and part of us despairs because we know that we can never earn our right standing before you by performing these things. We know that, Lord. Instead, our right standing with you is a gift of what you've given us on the cross. But Lord, now, having been put into right standing, we who believe, we say, Jesus, work in us the character 
of true kingdom citizens. Help us to live these things better tomorrow than we live them today and better next week than we did this week and better next year than we do this year all the way up until either you return for us and draw us to you in the heavenlies or that day when we come and meet you at the end of our earthly days. You are our king, Jesus. Work in us the character of kingdom citizens. We pray this in Jesus' name.